ironically, I'm at a loss for words right now. We're 100 episodes deep, and that's an accomplishment because these shows are a lot of work. They take a lot of research. They take a lot of time to edit. Really grateful to my audience. Really grateful to the guests. Really grateful to Emily Brannigan for working so hard on getting all these things edited. But since we started, we haven't missed a week, and I'm not planning on missing a week in the future. I'm really enjoying this process. I'm really grateful for everything that I've learned and everybody that I've met and the places that I've got to travel for this show. It's a great experience, and I love bringing you guys along with me in all of that. So what we did for this episode is we took some of our favorite bits over the last couple of years and we put them together. And, you know, these are definitely uh, portions of episodes that I've gotten a lot of responses from you guys on. And I want you to keep doing that. Keep telling me what you like, what you don't like. If you want to hear from somebody on the show, you got an idea for a guest, let me know. You guys are part of this too. So again, thank you very much for following along. Uh, this show's become a, a great success and I'm really excited to see what the future holds for it. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Welcome back, folks. To the Six Ranch Podcast, we are back in Hell's Canyon on another little jet boat trip. Just a fun trip up here to get away from people, do a little bit of bass fishing, get in the sun. And I have with me three very special guests today. Would like you guys to introduce yourselves. I'm Weston Rogers, account manager for Six Hour of the Northwest. Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, Kevin Rogers. I'm a veterinarian and raccoon trapper yeah kevin the raccoon trapper is the star of today's show i can tell you guys that right now and if you've ever wondered how to give a grizzly bear a vasectomy this is the show for you so you mentioned moose on the loose earlier have you ever seen a moose on the loose that required your attention oh yeah um, Dr. Pawnee, the veterinarian I work for, and a great guy, and, and really the authority of all interesting wildlife stuff in the greater Spokane area. The fishing game would always call him, or his office anyways, and uh, if something was going on with the wildlife in town that needed a, a veterinarian. And on this particular day, it was a hot summer day, they 
called and said there was a young moose that was uh, sleeping in a junkyard on Mission, which is the downtown kind of industrial part of of Spokane, and they wanted to know if he could come down and shoot it with a dart gun so they could safely extricate it from the junkyard. But he wasn't around, so I had to go do it. And so I sneaked up on the moose, and we had an air rifle with the appropriate sedatives in there, and I darted it, and it was a good shot. And the moose jumped up when the dart hit it, and then pretty soon he laid back down, and I counseled the fish and game officer to just wait until I gave him the green light that it was ready. But he was impatient, and he thought the animal was sleeping well enough, so he ran up there to put what's or the equivalent of moose handcuffs on the thing. There, there are these, you know, hobbles. And um, But the moose jumped up and staggered its way through the junkyard <laughs> and leaped a six-foot razor wire fence, which unfortunately had a drop-off on the far side and landed square in the middle of Mission Avenue, which is a really busy street. So a drunken moose is now running down Mission Avenue, and the fish and game guys, come on, Doc! And so we jumped in his pickup, and we went screeching out onto Mission and chasing after the moose, and the moose ran through this park that was there, and I was hanging out the door like Doc Tari trying to get another dart in this thing as he was catching up to it but this moose was on the move and we were literally driving through the middle of the park and how we avoided everybody in the park is still a mystery to me but we got another dart in it and it cut into a big lumber yard and they had a cowboy with a horse trailer there to remove it when our plan a was going down so (laughs) (laughs) is it a a moose boy at that point (laughs) he had the bright idea of roping this half trunk moose that was cornered in this lumberyard warehouse why not i mean yeah what could go wrong straight out of the handbook (laughs) and um so he tossed me a lariat and that was a joke in and of itself (laughs) i mean i grew up on a cattle ranch but my roping skills are pretty weak and um, but we did manage to get a couple of loops on this thing and wrestled it to the ground and eventually hogtied it and pulled it into a horse trailer and off it went to Mount Spokane to live happily ever after. But, yeah, no, there, there's always something going on like that when you open yourself up to it, I'll say. Currently, things are a lot calmer. I work with a, a raptor biologist who has a raptor rehabilitation facility in um Coeur and she does a great job of gets a lot of releases and that's pretty fun she'll bring me a you know a barn owl or we just pinned the wing on a bald eagle last week that had broken its humerus and hopefully it'll turn out well and get rehabbed and get turned loose and she has a lot of volunteers that help her so there is some reward to wildlife um, veterinary work but being involved with those sanctuary tigers and stuff Anymore, I would just say, no, thank you. It's just, it's it's a shady business, in my opinion. Have you ever uh, worked on a grizzly bear? <laughs> Only once. And it was very brief. I'll explain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the Walk in the Wild Zoo that's had taken in a um, pair of cubs from the Alaska fishing game. They'd been orphaned, and they were male and female. And they were going to be part of their zoo exhibit. And once the male grizzly reached sexual maturity, they decided they didn't need some three-eyed grizzlies and they'd better get him sterilized. And so they uh, got WSU, because the veterinary school is only 90 miles away, to come up and uh, do a vasectomy on the grizzly bear. 
And so the veterinary school and a lot of students were there, and I wasn't because they had this handled. And uh, they <laughs> they sedated the bear, and he stumbled his way down to the bottom of the like three-acre exhibit. It was a great exhibit. It had big boulders and very natural-looking environment. But he wedged himself between the fence and this giant house-sized boulder, and that's where they managed to do the vasectomy. And once they thought he was about half awake, they left because they had to get back to school, I guess. I don't know. But the zookeeper called me at like 11 o'clock at night and said, you know, they left at 3 this afternoon. He's still not up from the anesthetic, and she was getting worried. And so I wasn't too sure what I could do about it, but I promptly drove out to the zoo, and um, we poked the bear a few times from the outside of the fence, and he wouldn't move. So I said, well, I guess we better take a closer look. I got my toolbox full of gear, and we had to crawl through this equivalent to a doggy door, bear door, to go out into the main exhibit. And we went clear down to the bottom of the exhibit, and we climbed up on this big rock that he was on the other side of, and we're staring down there with flashlights, trying to decide, you know, how to do this. And the bear just stood up. He'd been faking it. And he was eye to eye with us. I mean, we were eye to eye with a male grizzly bear that had just had a vasectomy. And you talk about drowning him in heel dust. We skidded <laughs> up that trail and dove back through the doggy door and slammed the bolt shut so fast you couldn't even see us moving. <laughs> so that was that. But I thought we were going to be bear chow. The way the castration would have altered his hormones apparently um, changes their the way they shed out and a bunch of other stuff that yeah. would have been undesirable. So. Huh. That's what they did, but so I didn't exactly doctor on it. I just looked at it like I was going to doctor on it and then ran for my life. But just you being there was enough to wake him up? and I guess so. I think he was just waiting for somebody to come in his cage. He, he, he seemed like he enjoyed the whole affair. <laughs> <laughs> now, Coriel, you brought up something about a miracle mare. See, they know my stories. Sometimes <laughs> I start telling them. And, uh, yeah, that... Well, amongst other things, I was a horse doctor. And um, I say that in a past tense. I still occasionally work on a horse, but the focus of my practice is no longer horse work. But this was Easter morning, and I got a call from a good client who was in an absolute panic. She had a mare that was having a foal, and um, she thought that something was wrong. And um, so I jumped in my truck and raced over there, and... I knew her suspicions were right because anyone that's raised foals before knows that, you know, a calf can be stuck, so to speak, for a long time and still survive the experience. But that's really not the case with a, a horse foal. And so I knew time was of the essence. And But when I got there, because it was Easter, her entire family, who had just gotten back from church to discover this, were standing there all in Sunday best, dresses, ties, and... Um, circling around me to watch and I knew it was going to turn out badly and I sat there and I warned them all I said look folks this is we're trying to save the mayor now because foals don't survive this much um, uh, delivery problems and so you need to be prepared because I didn't want you know 50 crying people in them all thinking I did a bad job either so <laughs> once I got them psychologically prepared which is 90% of a veterinarian's job I think we anesthetized the mare because she wouldn't stand still for anything else. And I shoved the foal back in and rearranged its legs and pulled it out and fully expected, 
you know, it to be deceased. And dang, if it didn't just jump up almost instantly, stagger around, let out a little semblance of a whinny and the mayor looked back at it whinnied and the whole crowd cheered and there was praise jesus is going on and everything it was really to a large animal veterinarian it didn't get much better than that but yeah because i awesome. certainly didn't see that one coming i thought it was going to be all tears yeah so it was it was a miracle i think it was just a lucky day for everybody involved so i've, I've i get excited I, i'm kind of ahead of myself why don't you explain you know, briefly or in as much detail as you'd like, what it is you do for a job? Like, who are you? Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, like you said, my name is Brad Leone, and I've been um, basically how I got into fermentation and food uh, on like a bigger scale and on a public image scale was I, I, you know, I started working with Bon Appetit magazine here in New York. And, um, and that is where I really had the ability. I started off as test kitchen manager. Well, basically I started off as test kitchen assistant uh, about nine, nine years ago. I was a glorified dishwasher, but I just wanted to get my foot in the door and get into this world that is more than just restaurants. You know, like I love restaurants. I grew up in and out of restaurants, but the food industry was so much more. So I really wanted to, long story short, I left this farmhouse swinging a hammer in New Jersey with some friends uh, as a job. And uh, I took a loan out and found a house on Craigslist uh, in, in Brooklyn with about six roommates and strangers and moved there. I took a loan out, went to culinary school and um, got an internship at Bon Appetit. And uh, yeah, just kind of worked my way up. I just decided, I said, just get me in the door, man. I'll wash your dishes. It's better than freaking roofing a house in August. I'll tell you that much. So <laughs> it can't be too much. We're Monday through Friday. I'm cooking and eating. This is great. And learning, you know, keyword learning. I was learning and being exposed to all types of new stuff. So yeah, to fast forward, you know, video started to take off a little bit and I really kind of developed myself into a, a host, a, a video personality, we could say. So, um, and then it started off, you know, really big projects in, in the test kitchen at New, you know, for Bon Appetit, doing fermentation, kombucha, sauerkraut, miso, kimchi, um, dried fruits, jerky, and then it really, what I always wanted to do was get into telling stories and telling where I thrive is with storytelling with other people. You know, I like, like I'm fun, I'm great, we can have fun, whatever, but like. I like other people. There's a lot of really beautiful, awesome people doing really awesome things who aren't in, who people aren't shoving cameras in their face, you know, whether or not they want it. And, you know, that's one thing, but being able to go and tell stories and what my shows evolved into was restaurants were the rock stars for the past, what, you know, 10 years or 15, whatever it is. And uh, it was all the chefs, the chefs, you know, these guys, but like the chefs ain't shit unless they're getting the quality ingredients, whether someone, Farmer Keith is growing the most amazing garlic and, you know, ranchers with the beef or whatever it is, the best zucchini in the world. The artist, the chef, the artist can't do anything without a really handsome palette of things to work with. So, like, I want to be able to say, and what I have been starting to do is showcase that and how just get involved in our food system and get people to just get off the couch a little bit, like, get involved with their food. Like, if you have a problem with meat, maybe you should, you know what I mean? Like if, if the idea of killing an animal for your benefit, for your consumption of food bothers you, hey, more power to you, man, don't do it. But if you're gonna go and eat meat, if you're gonna go and buy that real clean package of pork chop without a face, you damn well better not have a problem with the people who are doing the hard work 
and doing it on their own to feed their families. And that's, and I mean that with the most respect to people who do have a problem. Like, it's just a matter of, of understanding. Right. And I mean, we can, that's a rabbit hole we can go down with, you know, with like, but at the end of the day, any video I ever made of hunting or showing that process, uh, a mutual friend of ours, which you brought up Elias, one of the first videos I ever did for Bon Appetit uh, or Condé Nast for that matter was me and him went pheasant hunting and we shot birds, we cleaned them, we, we gutted them by ourselves. And, um, and you know what, and, and, and corporate lawyers were freaking out. They were really concerned. How is this gonna be received? I said, guys, it's a matter of how we package it. Like no one, you know what we're gonna learn is that no one likes factory farms. No one likes mistreating of animals. And I don't like people that do, you know? And that what I've learned in the hunting world is like, that's quite the opposite of what a good hunter, a respectable, responsible hunter is doing out in the field, you know? That animal lived a wild, full, true life right until I swiftly ended it rather quickly and used just about every part of that animal's body to feed my family. You have a problem with that. You, you have a problem with the way, with the world. You have a problem with existence, you know, with earth. I hate to tell you. Um, so like just showcasing that in a respectful way. And if that does bother you, hey, go eat plants. Go eat, go eat. And I, I, I support that and I do too. Point of, point of the matter being, don't this don't remove yourself and let someone else do the ugly work and then you know and then judge people for doing what what, what we like to do it's an interesting relationship today between hunting and cooking and i think it's always been an interesting relationship but it hasn't always been the same person that did both you know for for yeah. most of human history those are two different people and now we're kind of coming into a time where there's an expectation that if you hunt, you also have to have to cook and do so creatively. And there's this strange like offshoot of, of culinary arts within, um, I don't even know if art is, is the right word, but within hunting where it's sort of this fear factor thing. It's like we're, we're eating eyeballs and buttholes and like the inside of a beaver's toenails. Tripe and tongue. And it's just, yeah, it, need to be that way. Sure. And, and, you know, that's, that's interesting. It's intriguing. We all want to use as much of the animal as we can, but for a lot of non-hunters, that's the way that they are viewing this. It's like, Oh, and every time I, I take somebody that that's new out and start working on an animal, they're like, you know, do you know that there's fat behind the eyeball? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. But you know, there's, I'm not starving to death either. <laughs> <laughs> there's some other stuff that, that we can do here. Um, I mean, I know fermentation is a lot of what you do. Do you consider that, you know, your, your expertise or like the core of your, your culinary no. stuff? No. Yeah. So, I mean, about, about to answer your question quickly, no, I mean, I didn't pick up fermentation until relatively recently in my life. And my, my parents, I don't come from a, a family of fermenters, you know, you know, that no one, no one did any kind of rotting unless they just forgot something in the fridge or in the, in the, in the garage or something, you know, some accidental fermentation, but and that was all new to me and um, and my passion for it, it was just kind of like a good timing um, to where I was introduced to it a little bit. And it was just, I like projects. And then, then I also like, you know, I like science and I like, um, I like health and I like understanding the importance of gut health and microorganisms in your, in your gut biome and how actually how important that is to you name it from diabetes to cancer to just general nutrition, right. And just overall well-being. So like they kind of played two and two. And then once you open that little bit of a, that ma actually that massive, you know, rabbit hole that you can go down, 
it's a beautiful thing and it's tied into a lot of foods people that don't even you know necessarily you know uh, think of fermentation you know you go get it from your favorite thai restaurant get some pad thai and what's that real distinct flavor that little fish sauce in there or something that's just rotted fish with salt in a big barrel somewhere <laughs> real hot for six months. Like it's, it's so old. It's, it's basically, you know, it's the original refrigeration, you know, being able to, to preserve food. So it ties in so beautifully with my new, my re love for, uh, you know, farming and growing things and cooking and hunting to where it's like, yeah, those, those, some of these things, whether it's canning or fermenting can really tie those old ways of, per, of preserving food. That was, I mean, God, there couldn't be something more relevant to hunting, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we grew up hanging meat for a long time and there's, if we had the right weather conditions and the time of year, we would have a deer or an elk hanging in the shop um, until we were done eating it, you know, we weren't butchering that animal. We we're going out and cutting off whatever we wanted to cook for the night. That's right. And there'd be big layers of mold on the outside and just take some vinegar on a rag and wipe it off. And, yeah. you know, I really didn't think anything of it. And, and then I kind of got shamed about that a little bit later in life. And like, Oh, that's not how you treat meat. That's bad. And I was like, Oh man, I can't believe I survived. And yeah, then I guess I'll... we've been doing it wrong for 7,000 <laughs> years or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, and then um, I ended up meeting our, our mutual friend, Eli Cairo, and, you know, he, all he does is ferment meat, like that's his right. jam. And uh, getting to, to walk around his place in Portland and, um, and seeing all this moldy, furry meat that was so delicious, it was incredible. And, and the palate yeah. is incredible. It's, it's an amazing thing. And I'm really glad to see it come back. And, you know, I've had this conversation with other guests who, you know, take it to like rotting meat in Africa um, where it rots really, really quickly and right. how healthy these people are that consume it. Um, sure. It's an amazing thing. Well, you know, it's amazing when you find out how beneficial it is to work with nature instead of against it, you know, right. like it's unnatural to have an electric refrigerator, you know, but in the right climates, hanging a piece of meat, like, makes total sense and like controlled rot you know that's what fermentation is and that's basically what uh, maybe not so much with dry aging is because you're not really rotting but like you're you're starting that that decomposition that natural cycle of this animal is no longer alive and pumping hot blood and and you know and like it's funny it's 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 awesome that you mentioned you grew up with with hanging hanging you know deer or animals at that matter and that's an old, that's been around forever, right? But like for me, and I feel like for a lot of people, like when my dad killed a deer and like, he just didn't know any better. You know what I mean? Like it's how he was taught. Now his dad was taught or whatever, but like you killed that deer, it's, he gutted it. And he, he was hanging it from my swing set in the yard when I was little. And, you know, as fast as he could get it broken down and into the freezer, that was how you got the best product. And like science and it's just, it, it's not really the case, you know, like <laughs> it's actually a terrible idea. Um, and like being, I, I've, I've made some new friends. I got a good buddy of mine up, uh, up in where I'm, I'm going to be living soon up in coastal Connecticut. And um, man, some of the best venison I ever had. And the first guy I see to like have hanging a whole, just like how you were describing, hanging a whole deer, whole white tailed deer, um, just cleaned out, skinned, you know, and just hanging there and just, having all this bloom and growth on the outside. And it's like, Hey, Vin, you know, what are you doing? We're going to be up at uh, we be up at dance night. And he's like, Oh, I'll bring a steak by. I'll go. He has a little, he built himself a little walk-in, you know, and uh, 
he'll just cut these steaks off of this animal. And it's, you get this, like the last time I was up there and we had dinner, he'd cut this steak. I posted on Instagram, the steak off of this hind leg and it looked like tuna and it ate, it had this tenderness and depth, like a backstrap met a filet, you know, and a backstrap met like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, you know, let's just say like a backstrap, you know, it had like, it was tender and it was, it was just full of flavor. Not that a leg isn't, but like, it just didn't like most people take leg and that's like, that's burger, that's stew meat or something. You know what I mean? Like, so it was just to have that and this color and this depth and this, this density as you lose the moisture and you lose that rigor mortis and you allow those natural enzymes start to work their magic within the meat. As long as you have the right atmosphere and climate, I mean, he hangs the deer we ate. I ate it raw. It was hanging in there for 65 days. <laughs> <laughs> I took little pieces off and I was like, this looks, I'm sorry. There is no danger in eating this raw. We put a little show you on it, you know, a little soy sauce and let it, you know, hang out for 20 seconds and then real thin <laughs> kind of curve just to kill maybe you know, just for a peace of mind and, uh, and for flavor. But uh, it was four people ate it. No one got sick. I probably had four ounces of it and it was some of the best, tartar i've ever had in my life so let's go back to uh let's go back to when you're 17 you're married you uh you know you use an essay to to sue your high school basically to let you graduate which they do and uh and then what happens didn't you guys used to spend a bunch of time in the sierras oh yes so what did that look like well I love the wilderness and being out in it. So I figured out ways to get there. I made it happen. So, you know, I was had four children, two boys, two girls. And that's, you know, the way I did it with hand washing diapers. And, you know, there were no, <laughs> no things like today. But I said to my husband, I said, maybe we could get some burrows and go into the mountains. And I just could envision us setting up our camp kind of there and then packing those burrows and going up into the wilderness and even with the kids. So that happened. And how long would you stay in the mountains? Oh, three weeks, no tent. Uh, Sometimes my husband would have to go out to judge cattle at a fair or something and he'd leave me up there with the four kids and it was just, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful because at this little lake, Maud Lake, there were native German brown trout and there were no people. And And I kept a diary all through the whole thing. And my son Todd was not even a year old. <laughs> my dad. Your dad. Yes. He wasn't a year old. and And we carried him in on a little baby pack, set up camp and... You know, I had a big old copper boiler. I boiled diapers. And anyway, I figured out my menus. And and we ate like kings because we had the trout. And then I would bring frozen beef in or venison. We ate a lot of wild meat. And if there was a snowbank, I'd put it in that. And then when the meat was gone, we'd have spam, tuna. But I had always had a garden. So I brought, you know, potatoes and vegetables and we ate really well, and I loved to cook over an open fire. It was my thing. And, um, you know, the kids were so healthy, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, part in our life. 
to do that. We did that for years, just years. Yeah. When did you move to Oregon? 1968. And uh, tell me about tell me about that transition. Well, my husband had ranch jobs, and it didn't allow for any vacation. But he finally got a job with the University of California at Davis as beef cattle herdsman. And that allowed for a two and three week vacation. We'd never had a vacation in our whole life. We worked seven days. I worked right alongside him showing cattle and um, and the kids. I never had a babysitter, always had the kids. And um, so we came up here on a vacation because a man named Justin Snyder had moved from our area where we live there in Davis to a place called, I couldn't even pronounce it, Walla something. That turned out to be Wallawa County. And then we had another friend named Bill George, who also was with the university um, uh, staff, uh, palmology department. We didn't know him real well, but he was a friend of Justin's. And he said, if you come up sometime, you can stay with us. So we loaded all the kids and took off for a vacation. And we spent the first night in a motel, first motel our kids had ever been in, the next day we got on the road. We ended up in this county at night. It's a long, long way from Davis. And we had an old car. Usually he had car trouble too. And we got here at night and our friend Bill George had elk steak, potatoes and gravy, and rhubarb pie, which I'd never tasted anything so good in my whole life. Anyway, we were tired, so we went to bed. We got up in the morning. It was June. And I looked out the window on Alder Slope, where he lived, and I looked across the road, and there was this old house that was just kind of falling down, and I said, you know, we got to live here. I'd even live in that old house that's falling down across the road. And the mountains were gleaming with new fallen snow. Everything was green. The air was pure. I just went to myself, it's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. Anyway, three years it took, and it did happen. We left a secure job, um, insurance. We moved up here, and we had no job, no house to live in. Before the moving van got here, I found an old rented house to, to move our stuff into, and um, my husband found a job um, on the lower Imnaha at a place called Krell Creek. I think he made two or three hundred dollars a month and room and board. And I went to work at the hospital for three seventy five an hour. But we were here. That was fifty four, going on fifty four years ago. And uh when you got here, you know, with with all the kids, it was just you, right? Um Lyman was wasn't here, so the kids had to go out and, and start hunting immediately, didn't they? Well, he went to work um, on the lower Imnaha, and, and that commute is impossible. And that didn't last too long because he got a job with Bill Wolf, um, had a Hereford ranch, and that was my husband's expertise. So Bill Wolf uh, showed cattle in Texas. Hmm. And so he took off with the show herd to Texas and was gone most of the winter. And he left before winter set in. 
and we were in this drafty house with no stove, no heating stove at all, and no wood. And um, our friend Bill George said, well, you just go on the radio. There's a thing called Swap and Shop and say you want a stove. Well, we got a stove. And then Bill took us out in the woods, and anyway, we got our winter wood supply, but but that stove was an Ashley stove, and they were notorious for not throwing out heat, and we didn't know anything about Willow County winters, and it <clears throat> turned out that winter of 68 was a, a doozy. It got down to 32 below, and the kids and I stood around with sleeping bags over us over that stove that didn't give off any heat. And the toilet cracked because it froze. It froze with ice, and the icicle on the bathtub didn't melt for three days. It was it was bad, <laughs> but we made it. We made it, and we know about stoves and getting wood in and everything now. So, I mean, at which point do you start growing ear hairs? I had. If I would have known this, I would have been taking care of it since day one, James. It just hit me rent. I. How just, long did it get? It was like a quarter inch, half inch. That's long enough for an ear hair. I feel like any length is too long. I think at some point you reach, you reach this level where you can just like start growing out your eyebrows and your ear hair and like get these big professor eyebrows. Yeah, like, just, just let it go. I'm not there yet, but you you are growing your hair. Are you recording this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't started yet, James. Yeah, we have. Oh, man. Yeah, I just, uh, that's where I hit. And there was something else that just happened recently where I, it was those come to Jesus moment where I was like, I'm old. I'm getting old. I like the gray hairs. I see. I've rocked the gray for a long time. Yeah. I, ever since I was like, I think after my second appointment, they just started popping up out of nowhere. And I, I messed up and I plucked them at first. I was like, what is this? Is this a gray hair? And pink. If and then you, if the you next kill day, one, there was 10 more. Yeah, yeah. If it's you, like, if it's like kill a coyote, one, 10, come to the funeral. <laughs> it was a coyote, dude. <laughs> it was a coyote. She just beep, got one, and then, dude, they just multiplied. It came in a full force, and then I gave up. I stopped fighting it and just accepted my, my fate. I wonder how old the oldest coyote ever was. Man, I don't know. You see some of these bears that get killed, right? And they're, like, pushing 30 years yeah. old. Like. I know, obviously, dogs' life is, lifespan is way older, but I feel even like an eight-year-old dog in the mountains surviving is ancient. I was hunting in a mountain range in central Nevada, and me and my buddy Adam were above 10,000 feet for like five days, mm -hmm. barely holding on to deer life, you know, trying to trying to get a mule deer with a, with a trad bow. No. Didn't happen. It was an incredible hunt. But I saw a coyote up there above 10,000 feet, on a Mustang trail that was three-legged. Just, just earning it. I don't even know if I, I mean, I would shoot it, but seeing it that high with one, there's three legs. I mean, that's just one of those things you almost just be like, good for you. Well, I shot a two-legged one. What? Uh, yeah. So he had one, um, one front and one rear. Um, he was missing a front all the way up next to his body. And then his other rear um, was still bleeding and he had bite marks going up his leg wolves who knows yeah you know whether he got tangled up with with wolves with a mountain lion with another some pack. cow dogs other oh, coyotes yeah. Yeah, yeah. like there's a lot of things that are against a coyote but and he, he was kind of moving weird across the hillside but not weird enough that that's what caught my eye i was just like coyote grabbed a gun shot the coyote went out there and uh yeah two-legged 
That's interesting. Incredible animals. They really are. People don't, I don't feel like, give them enough credit. They're tough. And coyotes are hard to hunt. If you're, like, going out with the intention of hunting a coyote, it's not easy. Mm-mm. No, especially in a hunted area. I mean, there's a, I mean, nowadays it's such a big thing, right? I remember yeah. even five years ago it wasn't huge. Now it's everybody's just out slaying dogs all winter. I mean, that's all you see, and so which is awesome. We need it. Yeah. But now it's like, I mean, a few years ago you'd drive around any ranch property and there'd be just dogs running everywhere. Now it's just... I mean, God. They're smart. They're they adaptable are. animals. They definitely get smart real quick. Mm-hmm. Better hit them first shot. Or they're educated. And it's a little target. That's another thing people don't understand. Yep. They look big and poofy. You know, a lot of times when they're coyote hunting, you have a scope with a lot of magnification. You zoom way in. But their kill zone is about the size of a grapefruit. It's really, yeah. It's really small. I think the best shot I've ever put on a coyote was seven ninety nine with a client. He, Oof. It was probably, a, I'd say, 90% luck. And... I well, mean, it's a, it's a half MOA shot, mm, dude. So can you hit, I, can you hit a dime at a hundred yards? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I could. Let's do it this week. Okay. I feel like I could every time. No, absolutely not. So it's not just like that because a dime at a hundred yards is one thing, but you don't have to deal with 800 yards of wind. Uh-huh. See, I had a, I had a face like, you know, direct wind. So which spin was, drift, you probably have four or five inches of spin absolutely. drift. And it was with six, five creed too. Your favorite. <laughs> I, had, I had Christie's gun. It was my tr- it's my truck gun when I'm guiding, you know. And that guy, I just, this dog was just standing, I mean, just out there. I ranged <laughs> it out the driver's or the passenger side window, and I was like, 799. I dialed 800, got out, put it on the hood, poof, and I hit him right above the elbow, in between the shoulder and the elbow. Yeah, and he spun around and just played down. <laughs> he just didn't go very far. It's a great shot. Yeah, my client was like, there's no way. There's no The whole time. I'm like, well, stop moving. He's in the truck, you know, bouncing around trying to get his binos. And I was like, well, we're going to give her a shot. I shot a coyote from a long ways away once. I know. California. Have you told this story on our podcast yet? I don't think so. I was going to have you on my podcast <laughs> to tell this story because it's that good of a story. You hold the world record. We'll just I'll, we'll, I'll wait. We'll, I'll wait. We'll wait. We'll wait. We'll wait. We'll wait. We'll wait on that. It was a long shot. Yeah. You know what else is really deceiving is, is antelope. <laughs> yeah? I still haven't hunted antelope. Dude, you're going to come to Wyoming with us this year. We're yeah. Gonna, I got you. We're going to do, do that. But, yeah, there's, I mean, a lot of guys, especially with clients, they just, I, I'd say that's one of the most missed things that I have guided. Guys are just like, man, like, I thought I was dead to rights on that. And then you get up to them, and they're just such a small-bodied animal, I, I feel like. Like, a lot of guys just don't realize it until you get up on them. People tend to shoot over them, under them, not play the wind? Yeah. No. Um... I see a lot of undershots is what I get on them. I mean, it's just, you see them, and once you get up on it, it's just such a deceiving animal. I feel like, personally, it's just, you know, when I put especially kids or anything on, I try to get them as close as possible. But I just saw a video the other day. Some guy hammered one at, like, 780. I was like, that's impressive. Like, it's a good shot on an antelope. It's a real, I mean, it's not much bigger than a, than a coyote. Yeah. Okay. So, right now, we are at the Gray Cliffs Ranch outside Bozeman, Montana for the six hour elite hunter training forum. And you're one of six elite hunters. Um, we're flying like 16 people, 17 people out here to this lodge to get trained on shooting and products. Um, with guys like Peter Howell, 20 year guide, Daniel Horner, um, you know, like 11 time international world champion, like the unreal yeah. next level. Pretty good at shooting guns. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and me, and we, uh, we're going to go through some shooting, but we were just out on the steel course and talking about paint and some of these targets were painted vertically so that half of it was blue and half of it was white, left blue, right, white. 
And I was mentioning to you that that can be a deceptive target because your eye naturally goes towards the light yep. and you want that contrast between your reticle and that lighter color. And if you allow your eye to do that, then you've cut your shootable space down in half. Literally in half. So with an antelope, <clears throat> they're white on the bottom half of their body. Mm-hmm. So if the misses tend to be low, it makes me wonder if that's not what's going on. Because most misses on most game animals are high. Yeah. I mean, it could obviously, there's a lot that goes into, you know, with a client as well. Sure. Because who knows the last time they shot. A lot of these guys come out and, oh, I'm good at long range. And you ask them, oh, 200 yards all day. And you're just like. You know, guys from Alabama, out east, they just don't, or Texas, the guys, some, a lot of areas just don't get an opportunity to actually really poke out and shoot long range. And when they do, I feel like a lot of them just put a big giant steel target out there and they're not actually trying to hammer an eight inch, you know, gong or yep. a 10 inch gong at five, six plus hundred yards. And so they come out and you get this animal and it's like, oh yeah, there's, you know, it's just like when you see like a mule deer, right? It's just, then you get up on them and some of them just grow and you're just like, wow, this is a big bodied animal, but doesn't really look at it. Some things could just be deceiving, especially if they don't have the time behind it. So it definitely makes it, it interesting for that. But yeah, I'd, I'd like, I mean, it's just, there's so much. I mean, I, I've, when you're not behind a gun, there's so many variables that can happen. And so it, it's hard to say with a client exactly what's going on. I mean, some guys are just dead nuts. I mean, they come out and they give you a range. And I try to, I try to cut every range that a client tells me in half. Like I ask first, for sure. day, like, Hey, what are you comfortable to? Oh, 500 all day. Cool. We're going to be at 250. That's yep. going to be our, that's going to be our, if we can, you know, I'll, I'll close it as close as I, I can even like, right. I'm talking rifle hunters. I'll get, I'll put it in. I treat every hunt almost as it's like an archery hunt. Like, yep. cool. You could shoot 800 yards. So they're, they're so wind drift i mean you have the humidity you got everything comes into play and so i try to eliminate every single option that we can with with a client and like hey we're good right here we still got a lot of terrain to cover and we have a lot of dead space between us that we can hide and get low like why not close it in i'd rather come over a hill at 150 yards and just you know almost like nothing's guaranteed but you know increase the odds for that so it's it's definitely could be interesting but this place is next level i mean oh it's a beautiful place mm-hmm. i'm beautiful excited place. it's gonna be a fun week you should see well you're gonna see them later but i saw the steaks we're eating tonight i saw what what's in the what's in the oven so we are having wagyu prime plus <laughs> prime rib tonight is this from the six ranch no no, no it's, it's, <laughs> my my cattle don't make prime you yeah, know they okay. they don't they're they're a leaner animal but Man, we've been getting treated real good. I've been here for a day now, and the food is just incredible. That's the first thing I did is I went and checked out the kitchen. Beautiful place. (laughs) Yeah, beautiful place. Oh, yeah. Mr. Corey Jacobson, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, James? Good, good. Um, Corey, if you wouldn't mind, can you kind of talk us through the phases of, of the rut or even the the early archery seasons, you know, we've got some archery seasons that start in in, uh, in the middle of August. Yeah, and you know, I think that that's really important to to understand the phases of the rut, to understand the elk's behavior and the elk's need during each of those phases, uh, and that'll lead us into I think why that week is both of our favorite. You know, that thirteenth to twentieth time frame. Uh, you and I talked before the show. That's just, that's the prime time for if you're wanting to call in elk, I think, and, and hopefully a generalized overview of the seasons will, will lead us into that and explain 
why we like it so much. But, you know, you mentioned season start in the middle of August. You've got Nevada's got an August season for archery. You've got Utah that opens in August uh, and other states. You know, I think Colorado now has has uh, somewhat standardized their season so it doesn't shift as much and end up on August 23rd or 24th like it sometimes would. Uh, Oregon still shifts a little bit and you know sometimes you end up with the that last week of August is your opening week but that's a tough time to hunt because you've got elk that during the summer the bulls are in a bachelor group and they're spending time together they're they're tolerant of each other but about that 10th to 15th of August most of those mature bulls leave that bachelor group and they go off by themselves and the reason for that is they're they're starting to get annoyed with each other. They don't want they recognize each other as competition. They recognize that the rut's about to start. Uh, the the natural instinct for them is to gather cows during the rut to breed. And first to middle of August is just a it's a time where there's a transition where they don't want to be around another bull. And they go to these little I call them the bull bedrooms. You know they just go to this tiny little patch by themselves they have feed and water usually right there so they don't have to move hardly at all and they start you know shedding the velvet they rake their antlers uh, on trees and it helps them shed the velvet it builds up the neck muscles and gets them ready for the rut so you'll go into these areas sometimes and see all these trees just rubbed up within a tiny little area thinking oh this is where the rut takes place but that actually there might not even be an elk within 10 miles of there when the actual rut starts. That's just where they stage before they go and start looking for cows. So really, if you're hunting that 15th through 25th or so timeframe of August, a lot of times for those mature bulls, they're gonna be by themselves. They're gonna be hard to find. Uh, but with that being said, they, they are very territorial and they're very irritable. That testosterone starting to flow and it can be difficult to, uh, for them to turn down a challenge. So calling can work during that time, but it's going to be, you're going to hear one bugle every three days type of a thing and get in and maybe be able to have a, a really quick aggressive in, encounter with that bull. Uh, but finding them is going to be more difficult. Water is going to be your friend. I think at that point, uh, water is probably in most states their primary need right then. From there, you transition into the younger bulls will start doing the same thing. For, the, for a lot of them, though, those really young bulls are going to still be with the cows, or they might be bachelored up in a group of three or four little raghorns or spikes. Uh, but then after that, so about the, the 5th of September or so is typically when we start seeing uh, bulls really go on the search for cows. And you'll find, I mean, even the 30th of August, you'll see a six point bull with cows and think, wow, they're already herded up. You know, things are already happening. And a lot of the times that's not the herd bull. That's a bull that is a, a subdominant bull. He might still be a six point, he might be a you know giant, but there's another bigger bull there that's probably gonna come and take over that herd at some point. Uh, it's usually around September 5th when those bigger bulls start wandering. They start looking for the cows. They're aggressive then, but they're still not fired up to the point where they're bugling constantly, where you can locate them with bugles. Uh, your first bugle gets answered, you know, the second that it hits the mountainside. Uh, they're still going to be a little bit tight-lipped. Uh, you've still got some hot weather sometimes that you're dealing with. Uh, but they are on the move, so you're going to start seeing them a lot more readily. You're going to see tracks and sign of bulls a little bit more than you did the week before. 
Uh, and calling can be can be effective. They're looking for cows, so a cow call can be effective at getting a response from them. And if they feel like there's a, a bull there that's threatening their dominance and he's with the cows, uh, you can you can absolutely get them fired up to fight. As you move into the, the next week, you know, from I think the fifth this year falls on a, a Sunday. So that fifth, sixth time frame uh, through like the 11th, you're going to see a lot more bull activity. Uh, you're going to hear more bugles, but then as we get into that next week that you and I talked about, like the 12th through the 18th of September, that's prime time. That is when the bulls are actually fighting. They're establishing dominance. They are building their harems. They are they're actively pursuing uh, a subdominant bull that might have four or five cows to go and run him off and take those four or five cows. Uh, they're they're building their harems. They're doing everything they can to prepare for the next week, which is the peak rut. And I've always always felt that the peak rut is triggered uh, by the by the moon phase as well as the daylight hours. And I think the two contribute to each other. But uh, this year, the the fall equinox falls on I think it's the 22nd of September. It's somewhere in the 21st, 22nd. And they've shown that that's actually what triggers the estrus cycle in the cows. And, you know, when a cow comes in estrus, she's ready to be bred. That's when the peak rut kind of kicks off and happens. And it's usually within five to seven days of the fall equinox that the, the peak rut really kicks in and, and the cows start coming in estrus. So for me, I like to hunt the week leading up to that, which is you and I talked is that 13th through 20th time frame just because once those cows come in estrus, that is 100% the focus of the bulls. They are focused on breeding the cow that's in estrus. They're not as worried about fighting. They've already established dominance. Yes, absolutely, there's going to be clashes with bulls during that time, but it's more a quick run in, run that bull off, go back to your cows, protect your cows. Uh, you hear the term bugle and run a lot, and a lot of times that's what a herd bull's doing. He's got his cows. He's trying to push them away from another uh, threatening bull, and it can be difficult to call a bull in. It can also be difficult to get in close to a bull using calls. So uh, once that happens, you know, the, the rut happens fairly quickly, usually about eight to 10 days. All the cows end up getting bred, or a majority of the cows end up getting bred, and those bigger bulls will a lot of times leave the herd and, and retreat and kind of go off by themselves, uh, depending again on demographics. If you have uh, 10 bulls per 100 cows and there's thousands and thousands of elk, it's going to take those bulls a lot longer to breed the cows. The rut's going to probably last a lot longer. You're going to hear bugles earlier and later throughout the season. Whereas if you're in an area where the, the bull to cow ratio is 40 to 100 and there's only 100 elk in that area, uh, things are going to happen pretty quickly and, and taper off fairly quickly as well. So that's kind of in a nutshell, you know, the the thought process of the elk, the needs of the elk throughout the month of September, you know, the early rut, early season, pre-rut, uh, peak rut, and then into the post-rut there. One thing that I'd like to, to talk about just for a second, we grew up with a lot of old-timer myths about what causes rut activity. And the way I, I would really encourage people to look at it is that an elk should not base when it wants to have its calf off of what the weather's doing in September. <laughs> right. 
So the, their best guess is to have their calf because the gestation period is, is a set thing. Like how long they're going to be pregnant is set. They need to say, okay, based on the amount of daylight that is coming into my pupil today, I know where I'm at on the calendar of the year and me having a calf, you know, around the third week of May gives it the best opportunity for survival. So when there's this amount of daylight that triggers the cow to come into estrus, the bull smells that now we have peak rut and estrus does not last very long in a cow elk at all. Does it? No, it doesn't. And, and like I said, it's usually a small window when all of the cows come into estrus and you mentioned the daylight entering the, the cow's pupils. And that's really what the fall equinox represents. It's the day where the daylight hours are equal to the, the nighttime hours. And so you have equal amount of darkness and daylight. And, you know, science has shown that that's what triggers that, that estrus cycle. And I mentioned moon phase in there. So it's important to understand and this is not scientific, this is uh, Corey's observations, but it really seems like if you have a full moon leading into the fall equinox, the rut usually kicks in a little bit later. And I think that the full moon contributes to some of the light that's, that's entering those cows' pupils and adds to it and prolongs that until that moon starts tapering away. So I've just noticed on years where there is a full moon from like the 17th through uh, the 25th sometime in there. Sometimes it's the end of September before the, the peak rut really kicks in. Whereas if you have no moon uh, that, that week that we like to hunt, that 13th through the 20th, usually things will start kicking in a little bit earlier uh, ahead of the fall equinox there. So just something to keep in mind. And again, it's, it's nothing scientific, but as we try to get an advantage over the elk and try to predict what the rut's going to be and try to figure out what week we want to hunt, uh, that's definitely something that I look at uh, in predicting when the, the actual rut's going to happen. Good morning, Jordan Bud. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing fine, sir. How are you this morning? You know, I asked when you wanted to do this. You gave me a time. <laughs> We're here. But gosh, you're a morning person and I am not. So you've been up for a couple hours doing sit-ups and crunchies and... <laughs> side bends and what else have you worked out already no no i uh i have okay. not i usually do i try to wake up early and get a workout in early because then it seems like especially now the days are so hot it warms up and then i don't want to do it and then i don't do it and then i get freaking round so we don't want to want that to happen so i just get up early and uh <laughs> but i haven't worked out today yet so i'll just i'll uh throw a pack on later and brave the heat well, for those who do not know, Jordan Bud is one of my heroes. She lives in Nebraska. She is on the Sig Sauer hunting team and works for Rockslide and has a media business. She's a videographer, knows more about gear than, uh, than I'll ever learn, and is just an all-around badass. Um, so we have a mountain goat hunt coming up like tomorrow not actually tomorrow but it feels like tomorrow yeah it's close man it's it's close but in between that i'm super excited for it but in, in between that i've got a a few hunts one of them is a uh the bighorn sheep hunt the governor's tag bighorn sheep hunt for idaho and that's going to be oh cool 
Interesting. Yeah. So I just talked to the guide the other day, like a week ago, and he said the previous week um, they backpacked in and were scouting and it is going to be a backpack hunt. I kind of figured that horses would be involved, but they're not. Um, So I'm going to have to carry everything. And uh, they went 10 miles in and the total trip was like 21 miles round trip. And he said he carried water for seven miles. So I might die. Yeah, that's super rugged, super rugged. Um, so when is that hunt? Does that start in August? Um, yeah, I think the last day of August. So basically that first week of September, I think. Okay. And then are you doing any archery hunting in September? Um, so basically what I've got on the docket this year, it's super busy. Um, I have, I didn't really draw any tags myself. I drew an antelope tag here in Nebraska. Um, but most of my stuff's going to be filming. Well, it's pretty much all going to be filming, I guess. Um, but I leave, so I'm going to be down in Utah for the August 15th archery elk opener, which should be super interesting. Um, doing that, coming back here, guiding an antelope hunter, and then going on that, that Idaho trip and then going back down to Utah for elk if we don't um, kill that first week of August or that uh, that first week of season, I guess. And then um, going to Wyoming for deer hunt and then I go with you. So it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. So let's talk about sh- we're, we're going mountain goat hunting on Kodiak Island um, un- unless the Rona stops us. In which case, I, I'm going to be inconsolable. But let's talk about what it looks like to prepare from a gear perspective for an Alaskan mountain goat hunt. So um, for me, a lot of it has to do with the rain. Um, just having it being wet all the time. Like where I typically go, we're in the high country. I don't carry really heavyweight rain gear with me for the most part. And a lot of times I might not even have rain pants with me, depending on what the weather's going to look like. Um, but Kodiak, you know, I mean, not only if it's not raining, um, if you're going through all that brush and whatnot, there's a good chance that that brush is going to be wet too, especially in the mornings. So you need to have good rain gear, um, for that. So that's probably one of the biggest things. And then with the cameras too, is, is dealing with the rain. So I got a new, a couple new rain covers that I think are going to work well. So I think I have a system down that it's going to, it's going to work well, but that's, that was one of the bigger things for me was, uh, getting my rain, making sure my rain gear was dialed. Yeah. I've, I've been on a bunch of hunts where there was precip and it was being filmed and, you know, guys are just cutting a hole in a trash bag for their lens and then crawling inside of that trash bag with their camera. And it's so loud and visible and obnoxious. It just drives me crazy. So what are you doing to keep your cameras dry back there? So I got, I'm going to have a, like a dry bag that I'm just going to be able to put. Don't do a trash right now. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to do, I'm going to have a a dry bag with me that I can just put the camera in. And if I need to, like if it's bad enough or it's downtime or whatever, where we're not really deep in the filming. um, So I can put it in there and just, you know, have it be waterproof and just be able to set it anywhere, but have it be waterproof um, uh, or away from the water anyways. So that's what I'm going to do there. And then I also have uh, a company called Peak Design makes 
uh, rain cover that fits like on a for a specific camera. So I got a couple of those um, that should be okay. I mean, if it's raining and I'm using it, it'll be okay. But what I'm worried about more than anything is like setting it, setting the camera somewhere where it's just going to get saturated. So that's what the dry bag is for. Um, so, I mean, I'm crossing my fingers that that's going to be all right. One thing Cole told me, he's like, you have to, you have to make sure you have a rain cover for your camera because it's, it might not be good otherwise. So I'm thinking about bringing an umbrella. Oh my God. I've, I've, (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about this before and you know, a a spotting scope has the, the screw attachment on the bottom for mounting a plate onto it or whatever. I've always thought that a spotting scope should have another one on top that you could like screw a little spotting scope umbrella onto so that you could have, you know, a little place to keep your optic and your and your little eyeballs out of the rain when you're glassing. And I know a lot of people are like, well, if it's raining that hard, you know, you can't see very far. Yes, true. That's a point. However, this is a freaking mountain goat hunt. So I'm going to be glassing. I'm going to be hunting. And if I can only see through little sucker holes in the rain, I need to be looking through those all the time. So I haven't completely figured out how I'm going to keep my my scope waterproof. You know, you and I have a meeting later on today where we're going to go over a lot of this stuff. But I'm definitely looking into some options for, you know, how to keep my optical system good to go. But yeah, I, I definitely caught myself the other night um, looking up lightweight umbrellas. And it's, it's one <laughs> of those things like I, I was on a uh, on a for realsies backcountry hunt quite a while ago and it was the first time i'd ever seen one of those helinox chairs and somebody oh yeah you know pulled this chair out back at the at the trailhead and i was like you're packing a chair are you high <laughs> and after a few days in the backcountry we would we were ready to like fight each other for you know a little bit of time in the chair because we we're just glassing like crazy there's cactus everywhere and uh, it just wasn't any fun to sit on the ground so I think that there's a time when a luxury item like that is like the item to bring. Dude, yeah. James is going to be looking like he's at the beach with his uh, umbrella <laughs> sitting in his chair. Dude, it's going to be epic. <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, man, that's oh, going to be bring good. Bring some little but... umbrellas to uh, to put in my coffee. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. No, but that's going to be a dang fun hunt. I was actually on Kodiak a few years ago um, filming a girl and we just we did kind of the same thing that we're going to do this year on this trip, I think anyways. Um, And it was it was good. It was just you're in rain pants all the time, which kind of sucks. And actually, you know, this brings up a good point. I had a friend that um, he used this in Alaska, like it up in um, not on Kodiak, but the actual um, the main island? Is that what you'd call that? The main, the mainland? Alaska mainland? Okay. And uh, yeah, he, not, so. Not really an island, but sure. Yeah, I'll go yeah, with it. Yeah, I'm an idiot. Um, Sometimes. So anyways, he had, <laughs> instead of wearing pants, like instead of wearing his regular pants underneath of his rain pants, he would just wear like his, I mean, long johns essentially, and then put his rain pants over the top of that because they were it was always raining. Um, and then he could just unzip the sides and, and vent if it wasn't raining or if they were walking around or whatever. So I don't know, that might be worth a, uh, might be worth a shot. We'll see how wet it is. 
Okay. Yeah. Be interesting. I'm super excited. It's I've never got to hunt in Alaska before. I've been up there um, working on some fishing trips and I've got to to fish for fun once and I love it. You know, it, it exceeds it exceeds expectations in every way. So it's a pretty neat place. Yeah, it's going to be a great trip. I'm very much looking forward to it. Will will a big python lay more eggs? I mean, that's kind of a stupid question, but yeah. What's the difference? It's it's a good question for sure. And that and that's why specifically the females get so large. The males, they only get about 12 foot. The females, they're the ones that reach 18 foot and bigger because so they can lay these large clutches. Um, you know, an 18 foot snake, it they could lay 100 eggs or more. Dude, you've been desensitized if you're saying only 12 feet. Like if I saw a 12 foot snake, that would be the worst part of my day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, on, so the first year I started, dude, on average, I was catching 12 foot or bigger. Like it, I was blown away. I was like, really? there are monsters in these swamps. Yeah. It was wild. And I was catching a, a ton of them, you know? Um, now we're, we're definitely catching a lot again. It seems like this hatching season, um, is just on fire, you know, catching four to five, six, seven a night, but they're definitely smaller. They're all like six foot right now. It's like the, the larger side of average is eight foot. So, um, you know, we're, we're working the size down, but yeah, you know, to me, an average size Python is going to be anywhere from eight to 12 feet. And that's definitely a large, a large animal. How old are they to get that big? Surprisingly pretty young. Um, in a year, they can reach six foot. In two years, they can reach over eight foot. Um, that, that 17, seven incher Dude. I caught is probably five to 10 years old, depending on how much it's eaten. So, um, you know, it, it, it it's shows you how big of a problem they can become, how quickly. Okay. I want to talk about that snake and I'm going to link the video um, on your YouTube, but for those who haven't seen it, you caught an absolute giant snake this year, but it didn't go down as planned. Like just run me, run me through it. Tell me the story of this bruiser of a snake. So, um, for, for this whole year, maybe even, uh, I've been hunting these tree islands out on my little John boat, you know, trying to find nest and trying to, I really, what I was trying to find was a monster Python. I was calling it, you know, I'm searching for the man eater and, uh, I found a nest, which is really cool. It was the first nest for the Python program and, uh, first nest I've ever found a Python nest. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've caught a, some pythons breeding and everything like that, which by the way, all the videos are on my YouTube. And then, uh, so I go down this day to try my luck again, see what I find out on these islands, little 14 foot John boat. And, uh, maybe on like my ninth or 10th Island of the day, I come across the man eater, a monster, you know, I I couldn't tell how big it was just because of how big it was, you know, it just stretched throughout the vegetation further than I could really see. And, uh, I could just see its tail kind of slowly cruising and I could just tell it was an absolute monster. So I started videotaping it. I'm like walking up it, trying to gauge how big it is, trying to see where its head is. Cause on these real big ones, ideally you want to try to find the head and go right for the head. Um, because if you grab it by the tail, 
they're solid muscle. You know, they could be a hundred pounds, 150 pounds and a hundred percent, especially with the vegetation that they can use as leverage. They'll overpower you, drag you out in the swamp and you'll never be able to stop them. Um, so, you know, I'm looking for the head and, and I find the head, but I say, screw it. Let me grab this thing by the tail, fight with it. Um, my plan was, you know, cause I knew it was going to drag me out in the swamp. My plan was to really try to piss it off and get it to come and like attack me basically. So it wouldn't drag me off and I could kind of fight it how I normally fight the pythons, which is kind of dancing around it and waiting for my shot to grab the head. Um, I've caught them straight by the head before, but I've never caught a 16 foot plus this way. So, you know, Hey, let's see what I'm capable of. Um, grab it by the tail. It immediately overpowers me, starts pulling me into vegetation, pull me into the swamp. And, uh, I'm able to kind of dig my heels into the limestone and just lean back and stop it. So we're both kind of at a tug of war. It's not gaining on me. I'm definitely not gaining on it. And uh, I get it to come back on me and it starts trying to strike at me. I'm dodging its strikes and uh, being as old and clever and smart as she is, she struck at me and I dodged it. And as she was going back to recoil for another strike, she only went back about halfway and came at me with another quick strike that I wasn't expecting. Got me on my arm. Um, punctured down into like two, I'm looking at my arm now, the scars, two or three different veins. Um, I don't know if she hit a main artery or not. I don't think she did. But uh, when I first looked down, I thought she did because I just see blood squirting out of my arm. Um, you know, I got it all in video and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is going to be an epic video. <laughs> my whole arm's just covered. At your funeral. <laughs> oh yeah, just dripping everywhere. Um, and, you know, my, my main thought when I see all that blood spraying is like, I got to stop this bleeding. I got to first control her and then control this bleeding because not so much I'm worried about bleeding out all the way. I mean, that definitely crossed my mind, but I was more concerned about being out in this hundred degree sun, exhausted already, and then having to drag this snake, this 150 pound snake back to the boat. I'm going to black the fuck out. She's going to wrap me up and kill me. So, um, you know, I get her controlled. I'm kind of pacing myself, controlling my, my breathing, trying not to use that arm because every time I squeeze or fight with her, blood's just spraying. Um, so I finally get her contained. I grab the snake bag that I have on my belt, pull it out, tie it around my arm as I'm fighting with her. She's trying to bite me as I'm doing it. Get my arm tied off. And then now is the really hard part having to drag her. She actually weighed 135 pounds, um, 135 pound body all the way back to my John boat. And uh, I was able to successfully do it. She was still alive, got her to my boat, uh, stuffed her in a big black toad I had in case I did catch a monster. And um, on my on my boat was where my gun was. So kind of caught my breath, you know, regained my energy and um, opened it up grabbed her by her head and, and shot her. And then, uh, you know, fr from there, got her out of the swamp, took her to my house, uh, skinned her out and everything like that. After I did weigh her and measure her with the state, uh, and she did end up being a record breaker, 17 foot, seven inches, 135 pounds. Absolutely unreal. So a, a snake like that, 
it can kill and eat a deer. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what we call them, deer eaters. They, um, you know, at that size, they can eat just about anything. And probably what they're eating more than anything right now, after, you know, our deer population has really plummeted, is uh, alligators. They're probably feeding on like five to six foot alligators. Uh, I personally have come across and was able to rescue three alligators from pythons. Um, and it's wow. a crazy thing to come across, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's Jurassic Park. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, and you are a sir because uh, you were a captain when I was a first lieutenant when we were working together. Uh, how would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Heston Russell, like yourself, mate. I'm a, um, I'm a veteran. I'm a former serviceman now. But yeah, I was, I was a commando captain in Afghanistan where we served together in 2012. And I've since got out, I got to the rank of major and got out in 2019. And now I sort of head up uh, a veterans charity. I'm actually having a run at the politics here in Australia this next year as well. Yeah. Well, a little, a little background on, uh, on me and Heston. We worked together on, uh, on a really difficult mission together um, in October of 2012. And it was the second time that I was wounded when I was in Afghanistan. And while we were warming up for the show, Heston just sent me a picture of myself talking to him. And uh, before the show, we didn't know that, like, we didn't know that this is who each other were. Um, yeah. So this is really wild. I trying to figure out where on the battle space you were during that, you know, three days. But you were actually the, the Marine tank troop commander assigned to my platoon for that mission. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Um, so this mission was um, Operation Helmand Viper. And then there was a number that came after that, right? Because this had been attempted a, a handful of times before. Yeah, well, it's... It's interesting because you guys obviously call it something different to us. Um, okay. uh, I think we call it Operation Paladin. Uh, okay. And then all of us, we just called it the tank job. But um, the I think the official combined thing was, uh, like you said, Hellman Viper. I mean, this was our first attempt at it, um, but I think it dovetailed into a different mission set that your regional commander was looking to put forward to clear Keshmesh Khan. And this was a number of those different courses of action. I think one of them was throwing a Marine brigade at it or something, or then they decided the combat power required was a, um, a Marine company of tanks and a, and a commando company. And off we went. Which is a strange mix, right? If you send a, a um, you know, we brought out 18 tanks. So we, every, every tank that we had to bear, um, we, we brought to the battle space and that was every tank in the country of Afghanistan, by the way. Really? Um, yeah, that was wow. it. The army didn't have have any tanks there. I think the Danes had some tanks, but all they did was sit inside of uh, some kind of compound within one of the larger bases. They never went outside the wire. So James, we, just, we were it. Just so you know, this 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 story, this mission, apart from like me talking about it a couple of times, has never actually been like properly documented here in Australia. Australia has this terrible habit of um, if anything sounds too good, then we cut it down. Call that tall poppy cutting syndrome, but. Our special forces in particular just operates not in secrecy, but just in silence. Yeah. So this, this, this tank job, um, this operation is literally the first time Australians had employed tanks in combat since the Vietnam war. And it's still not something that's ever spoken about. So to hear it from the insights from you uh, are going to be the first time that so many people have heard it. And the fact that it's coming from you, who was the tank commander there on the ground is just absolutely incredible because uh, again, as per the way our culture is sort of skewed at the moment, 
if it's me talking about it, people are just like, oh, this is another guy talking about what he used to do. Whereas someone else who was there, who was, you know, like you just said, every tank in Afghanistan was dedicated to this job. You know, this is incredible things that our, our war memorial and our historians like should be grabbing onto. Well, I think you would be hard pressed to find more than a handful of people in America that have ever heard of Keshmesh Khan. And yeah. that was some legit fighting. Uh, the, the most legit fighting that, that I saw the entire time that I was in country, it was, it was extremely difficult. And, um, and you, you lost one of your own on that mission. Um, we had, we had 30 Marines who ended up getting medevaced out of, you know, a little, little over hundred guys. So about one in three of our guys ended up getting hurt mostly on the withdrawal from that mission, which took absolutely forever. It was like a 70 hour withdrawal to get from Keshmesh Khan back to our base. Yeah, and that's the crazy part is, and why um honestly I'm I'm sorry to hear that, mate, because we didn't really hear that. You know, we heard that you guys encountered some IDs on the way back, but you know, even those statistics, um, you know, I lost Corporal Scott Smith there on the twenty first of October, and that's sort of how that mission is easily remembered. But you know, we never got to hear of any of those casualties to your guys. So I'm really interested uh, if you can to sort of tell me more about that. Absolutely. You know, let's let's kind of piece back together how this mission went down a little bit um we we had to road march for for a couple days to get there from our base and we had some tanks break down along the way which is a normal thing tanks break everywhere they go they either break what they're up against or they break themselves um where where, where are you coming from we're coming from shirgazi yeah that's right okay so it it was quite a ways away the first night that we got there we executed a faint and uh and set the tanks up as if we we're going to attack another position i'm not going to give too many details about this but we executed a feint lined all the tanks up and we basically sat there and got shot by sniper fire until it got dark and the the idea was that the oppositional force being the taliban would then put in their ied emplacements in that position and not expect us to go where we did we employed some some psyops and some other things throughout the night to make people think that we're going to continue to attack that other position. And based on the radio traffic that, that we were intercepting, they bought it. Okay. For the most part. Uh, Then the next morning we attacked the other position and we meet up with you guys. And I I vividly remember meeting with you guys because when I'd previously done this mission planning, like you're in flip-flops and board shorts and everything's like, you know, chill factor 9,000 back at your base. And I was like, oh, I'm so jealous of these guys. And then we show up and your faces were, were fully painted in camouflage. Um, it was a, it was a different mentality altogether. And I was like, oh man, like we're, we're all in war fighting mode now. Um, th- this is, this is happening. It's real. And they're taking this seriously, which was fantastic. Cause that's, that's where my mind was at too. Yeah, for sure. Um, what was it like for you to see tanks rolling into the same battle space as you? Well, for starters, you were late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, it, it was very, it was very surreal because I mean, like you said, how many tanks did you say there were? Eighteen tanks. Eighteen, and I, I don't know how many of them actually got there. So let's let's say sixteen yeah. tanks actually show up. Well, then also, and I, to be honest, what wasn't fully. Um, understood or, or probably briefed as much or, or I probably just didn't focus on it as much was also everything else that came with you. I mean, we also had the, the MRABs turn up um, with the, the Marine sniper guys. And then, you know, even the, the supply chain you guys had and later when we went to Keshmesh Khan had all those different variants, but 
So we helicoptered in um, that night, uh, you know, did a bit a bit of a um, nighttime huzzah and landed straight onto target. And that was in particular so we could go straight to some of these key compounds that we didn't want to allow them the time and space to, you know, sort of rally things against us in the morning. And we had, you know, signal intelligence of some key people we wanted to go after. And um, then in the morning, we were actually sort of expecting you guys to arrive before the sun came up so as we could sort of stuff around, you know, you know, getting gear because we brought in a whole bunch of extra gear knowing that for the first time we're going to have these big uh, vehicles that could take some of the explosives and some of the equipment we'd other be, otherwise be carrying. But, um, you know, things got delayed, um, as is that great nature of the terrain over there. And next thing in the morning, we actually started having um, some people driving around our positions and starting to spot on our positions, starting to report on our positions. So we actually um, killed a few people just before you guys turned up. And then uh, you guys rolled in with these tanks and it was, uh, yeah, I definitely felt like there should have been um, some great theme music playing in the background. It was very surreal watching these um, big, big bloody M1A1 Abrams roll in um, at the yeah. same time. I, I remember long- rolling into that compound where, where we linked up and, uh, and you guys had pulled down some, pulled down security and there was a little, uh, there was a little dry wadi out next to it. And uh, yeah. a couple of guys had tried to roll up on you um, and had some night vision and you killed them. there, laying out there on the ground. And uh, yeah. And then we, we kind of linked up and, and started to figure out what the plan was going to be. And uh, yeah. yeah, sorry, we were late. Um, I don't know oh, what to tell you. <laughs> this is it. Like we, it's great. To, it's so fascinating for me to have this conversation with you because for, for those listening and watching, you know, that was that was one of 67 missions we did. And it was very monumental, obviously, for us. But we had so many more missions. And as is that crazy world over there, you just get drawn back into it. And the fact that just randomly you and I found each other on Instagram like yesterday and now having this conversation today and is the first time we've actually been able to debrief yeah. on this. Like it's, it's, it's war, mate. You know, the, the great level of detailed planning we have, like this is still war. And, you know, I'm a, I'm an absolute perfectionist even in today's life. So, you know, I, I like things to run to plan, but mate, you know, we rocked up, we linked up and we, um, we made it happen, didn't we? Yep. Um, yeah. I had a, a breaching vehicle that was attached to me, which was not a, a normal thing. And uh, the guy driving that was an absolute madman. Um, it was called Mr. Plow, wasn't it? Yeah. That's it. I remember. I have this image of Mr. Plow. I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So he was actually really instrumental in actually driving to the final objective because we ended up running into some walls that we weren't anticipating. And uh, yeah. that guy just went full wrecking ball and drove through all these freaking walls. And you guys kind of walked through the rubble behind him and got straight to the objective so that we could all get out of there. Um, he ended yeah. up actually uh, striking a couple IEDs on the way out and, and was badly injured. And I, the next time I saw him was at the Wounded Warrior Battalion back in uh, North Carolina. So by the time, you know, this is months, months later, both of us had yeah. gotten back. And then our units say, hey, you need, you know, all you need to focus on is medical stuff. Um, and that's kind of what Wounded Warrior Battalion is. And uh, yeah, that's where I saw that dude again. But so at one point we'd put, we'd push through the small town and I was sitting over a hill and I think I had had a couple trucks and I had all four of my tanks at my recovery vehicle. And, uh, and there were some elders that were meeting way off to my left. And there was this, this draw, this valley between us. It was about 1800 yards away. 
And I could see this, this moped start from my right. And he had, you know, maybe a couple miles to go in front of me. And you called me over the radio and asked if I could see him. And I said, yes. And then you uh, said that you'd intercepted signals intelligence, that he was planning on planning IEDs for the tanks and asked me to engage him. And this is where it gets complicated because you and I didn't get to talk about this before. Previous to this mission, like the week before, we'd gotten this, this tactical directive that had come all the way down from the president of the United States to us that said that we couldn't engage a target unless it was capable of defeating us, right? So basically for a tank, that's bad news because that means that I can't shoot anything unless it's a tank um, that can kill me. And there's not very many of those in the world in the first place. Um, So we're we're out there fighting with handcuffs on. And, you know, you and I had a back and forth and I could tell that you were frustrated. Of course, I wanted to kill this guy. And- Yeah, it, it was it was an absolutely terrible thing. What happens either later that day or the next day, and I, I don't have this clearly in my mind, is your your corporal, he stepped on an, an IED that was built for a tank and it killed him. And yeah. I think about him and I think about that every day of my life, every day of my life, as as I'm sure do, you know, almost everybody that was part of that mission. I felt like I was in a situation where I could either, you know, shoot the dude on the moped and go to jail or not um, and accept the consequences. And uh, it is an ugly ass thing to look back on that. Yeah, man. No, I hear you. And look, first and foremost, Scotty stood on an IED that had been buried for a long time. Um, and it was inside a compound and it wasn't where that dude went to. So you need to sort of free yourself of that expectation or that um, assumption. Um, you know, it's, it's not it, that, that the IED that killed him was not an IED that that dude touched. Like we know that. Um, yeah. Unfortunately it was Scotty's time and uh, you know, he was the absolute best at what he did. And the fact that his life is gone is just an amazing legacy for the rest of us to live up to deserve, you know, what he gave us. But the fascinating part about that was you could imagine me finding out that you guys had that directive uh, only after then being on the ground with you. (laughs) You you kind of would expect that that to be something that we might have discussed beforehand. But, you know, you and I and the team, you know, we did our sort of planning and those sort of conversations were saved for our company commanders. You always call it company commander or squadron commander? Company commander. Yeah, our company commanders um, who were positioned together. Um, elsewhere, but yeah, I had heard something about there'd been an engagement where a truck was hit and had civilians on it or something. Or yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean that was really really frustrating for me um, because you know we had that perfect intelligence and per the rules of engagement, that person was someone who we absolutely wanted to remove from the battle space, and you were the only one who had the the distance to be able to reach out and touch him. But um, you know, we can't change that, can we? <laughs> nope, we can't. Yeah, we can't. I think the best part for me realizing that is then, um, and then we had, when we lost Scotty, um, you know, realizing that the rules of engagement were not as strict for those who were in the trucks, who were in the MRAPs and were able to sort of bring them in and help them help us out with those uh, non-tank defeating targets. Yep. And uh, I mean, well, there's nothing we can do to change it by having this absolutely insane opportunity of being able to talk to each other about this. And the people that get to listen to this, um, hopefully we can prevent this type of 
you know, nonsense from occurring in the future, at least to a limited degree. There's, there's always nonsense in war, but um, we can limit it to the greatest extent possible by learning yeah. from the ways that it's gone wrong before. Yeah. And absolutely, man, this is it. Like the, you literally just put me on the back foot when we, just before we came on camera, because I asked you, oh, you know, which, uh, which element on the ground we were with. I was actually on oh, the commander here. And I was like, oh, well, I was the one who lost Scott. And you obviously look completely different facial hair now to what you did back then. And I've, I've held resentment. I've held resentment for, for years, mate, from what happened there on the ground um, from, um, you know, not knowing that you guys were allowed to uh, employ your main weapon systems, you know, that as me as a commander on the ground, I was really relying on you guys uh, to be able to do a hell of a lot more that you could. Um, and it's taken me a bit to get over that, but that's why it's just so incredible to have this conversation here with you now, because if there was one person I probably didn't want to talk in this conversation, it was you just because I've held that resentment, but here we are. So now we get to have this conversation and as per everything in life, we need to lean into these conversations because, you know, even just you um, saying that to me now, uh, it helps to relieve so much of that resentment that I've been feeling because I didn't fully completely understand what was going on. Like I just thought you guys were not allowed to engage because of this previous incident. I didn't realize like there was even that clarification over, uh, you know, it having to be a tank defeating thing. And since that deployment, you can imagine I have then encountered such similar bureaucracy and policies and directions that I can actually now understand how something so stupid can be said and what it is like being the person on the ground and even just hearing that memory that you've, you've cast and that thought of having any form of responsibility for Scotty's death, like, you know, myself as Scotty's commander, that's what I say here and now, like, you need to remove um, that trauma, you need to remove that thought from yourself. And just at the same time, I'm able to help work through some of that resentment I carried into this conversation. Well, I don't blame you a bit for that resentment. And, uh, you know, if you you know, you can obviously remember that frustration as, as quickly as it occurred then. Um, like that was our frustration for the entirety of the deployment, for the entirety yeah. of the deployment. I did a, over a hundred missions like that. It, it was yeah. incredibly painful um, to sit there and, and just soak up getting shot um, over yeah. and over and over again and not be able to do anything about it. Um, absolutely brutal. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and, you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff. Aladdin Stanley Thermos. Stanley, the tough, all steel thermos model that's completely dependable. They're showing this thermos like falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bounding year after year. <laughs> Get the top. Oh, lands in a wheelbarrow. The guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just like telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated so packing a thermos in the winter time is really smart whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh 
in the snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. I encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there. Have a nice warm drink. And uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.